Well, last Sunday we jumped into the first half of a message on what happens when the message of the gospel goes out there and starts to affect the culture, and what happens when the gospel starts going out and advancing and it collides with the world. And we spent our time in the first half of Acts chapter 19 with a reminder of just how it is that the gospel gets out there, how it does the moving and changing in the world. And the gospel goes out in the name of Jesus. Uh, The gospel must be explained. We need to tell people who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And we also, we ended on the note that the gospel goes out through Holy Spirit-empowered lives. That the gospel changes people, and it's the change in people that rubs up against the world. We ended on that very important idea that when the name of Jesus is proclaimed and trusted and obeyed, and when the Holy Spirit is active in confirming the word of the Lord, when the gospel is really changing lives, the place that you see the change in the world is in the conduct of believers. The way the gospel changes the world is by transforming the people who believe it. It doesn't change the unbelieving world. It changes and transforms the church. And it's the change in the people of God that should be creating the tension between the gospel and the world. So today we're going to be in the second half of Acts 19. But before we get there, uh, if you're turning in in the book of Acts right now, I'm going to make a little stop off in chapter 17. So you're welcome to turn straight to 19 and just listen. Or you can turn to Acts chapter 17 first. Um, Because what we have in Acts chapter 17 is a a shorter account of a similar kind of pattern that we see when the gospel goes out there and starts changing the world. Um, So uh, Acts Acts 17 right now, and just kind of by way of intro to Acts 19, I'm going to read about the first uh, seven or eight verses. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Actually, we'll stop there. These people have been accused of saying there's another king, Jesus. And, uh, and there's a pattern here that occurs everywhere Paul goes. Uh, because of the time and place that it was, he would go to the, the local Jewish synagogue first. That's what we see in, that, in the beginning of that passage. Uh, some of them hear and they're persuaded. Some of them disagree and they start persecuting the church. Uh, oh, where am I here? <laughs> Uh, but just look at, uh, look at verses 6 and 7. This is, the, this is the accusation against these missionaries who have come and started talking and proving that Jesus is the Christ. 
This is what they're accused of. These men have turned the world upside down, and now they're here also. And they're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. One of the things you see as you look through the book of Acts is that the enemies of the church will accuse Christians of being anti-Rome. They'll accuse Christians of being bad for the world. The Roman Empire really likes stability. People in power often do. So Rome had a reputation for coming down very, very hard on anything that might mess with stability, anything that might rock the boat. And so that's the way Christians would, uh, the, the enemies of Christians would get the church in trouble by just almost telling on them and by saying, hey, guess what, Rome? They're saying there's another king, Jesus. And were the charges true? The question, it's actually kind of a complicated answer. Was the church saying there was another king, Jesus? Absolutely it was. Christ is Lord. But Jesus makes it very clear that his kingdom is not of this world. Christians had no intentions back then of taking up arms against Rome and overthrowing the Roman Empire and saying, hey, we're the ones in charge. Christianity wasn't a military movement. It wasn't even a political movement. It was a spiritual movement. So at least in the early days of the church, and what we see in the book of Acts, is that Christianity is presented in, on one hand as being not harmful to the world, not harmful to the Roman government, not opposed to it. There's no direct competition, but... If you listen to these words, these men have turned the world upside down. That part of the accusation was absolutely true. When the gospel is preached, it does get a hold of people and turn them upside down. Jesus Christ changes people, and that's what can't be denied. The gospel presents this whole way of looking at reality, at creation, at who I am and who God made me to be and what allegiance I now owe to a God who created me and saved me. It's, it's absolutely upside down with the kind of man-centered and sin-darkened value system that, we just, that the rest of the world has. The world should be asking the question, what do we do with these guys who turn the world upside down? The world should be looking at the church and say, what is with those Christians? Why is the church full of people who were once totally lost, who once did all the things we did, but now they are different? Why do people change when they start talking about Jesus, when they meet him and when they believe in him? And why can't these Christians just approve of all the things the rest of us approve of? Why can't they just play along? Why do they stand out so badly? So the kind of conflict that inevitably comes up between the gospel and the world is actually a little bit more complicated um, than it looks on the surface. It's, it's not as simple as a military or a political attack on society. It's not like we're coming in with an argument and we're going to throw, overthrow everyone and, and win. In many ways, the change that the gospel produces in people is quite good for society. A lot of the things that the church does and stands for, it's things that should be good for everyone. The church should be a blessing for everyone around them. But in other ways, the gospel tends to turn the whole world upside down 
because the value system in the Bible is just so different. It's not me-centered. It doesn't give any room for sin. It demands that God be recognized as king on the throne. And so the result is messy. Right? The result is messy. And the result in our world right now is messy. You have nations divided right down the middle on politics. You have people that can't stand someone who voted for someone else's party. Um, my biggest argument for how messy the, the world's opinion of the church is at this time in history is my Facebook feed. Another, uh, another title for this sermon, at least for me at least, could be how to survive your Facebook feed. How to scroll down there and see all the different things. I see a whole bunch of things posted by believers uh, reminding me what's true in the Word of God and what's holy and pure. And then I see a lot of things from the other side of the world, from friends that I have that aren't believers, who some of them respect the church. Some of them can't stand the church. And I, I have to see things on a weekly basis, and maybe you do too. Arguments against the church, and some of them, some of them make a little bit of sense because sometimes the church has made mistakes. But some of the things that are said against the church are just so hate-filled and angry, and so many of them get it wrong. I don't know about you, but this, this is what bugs me the most. When I see the name of Jesus, when I see mud slung at the name of Jesus, and people have it wrong. When because of weird things the church has done, or weird misconceptions that the world has, when when Jesus' name ends up getting dragged through the mud. Uh, I don't know what to do in response to it sometimes. And I think that Acts 19 gives us at least a little bit of a different perspective than we normally have, enough to help us survive the kind of messy situation that we see in the world. The kind of the kind of response that the world has to the church that just flabbergasts us sometimes. Uh, Acts 19 is not going to completely clean things up. One of the things Acts 19 is going to remind us is that uh, it will be messy. It will be unavoidably messy when the gospel gets out there and starts scaring the world when people get changed. But I've, I've read lots of places recently that one of the biggest causes of stress and tension in people's lives and in work relationships and in uh, life relationships is, is the breakdown of expectations. When you start to expect that things will go a certain way and then all of a sudden they don't go the way you are expecting, that's when you get really stressed. That's when you react violently against what's happening in your life because you feel like the rug has been pulled out from under you. You feel like promises have been made and now things aren't going the way you expected they would go. And many of us, as Christians in North America, have come to expect certain things. We've come to expect certain freedoms. We've come to expect that uh, if I live my life in a traditional, morally upstanding, Bible-believing kind of way, that the world's going to respect that. And the world's going to look at that kind of life and that kind of firm moral stance and approve of it. But we're finding that quite often the exact opposite is happening in the world right now. And the New Testament helps us reset our expectations sometimes. Because what we find in God's word in the New Testament and the words of Jesus and here in Acts 19 is that maybe we are not entitled to a good reaction from the world 
when we bring them a good message. Maybe that's not what we should expect and what we should be entitled to. So let's read right now um, Acts chapter 19, and we'll start in verse 23 and read right down to the end of the chapter. Keep in mind that the, the context here is what we studied last week, which is the very last thing that happened is because, because God has changed people's lives so incredibly, they have responded to the gospel, they've stopped worshiping false idols. They, the last thing that happened in Acts 19 there was that uh, all of the believers in the town in Ephesus had a massive bonfire and burned all of their old magic books. It was an incredible value, like 50,000 pieces of silver. We can't even imagine uh, how much value they just took and put on the fire because they realized that they didn't need that in their life anymore. They realized that that was contrary to God's will and it was sinful and they, they took a stand. And so as a result of this, this kind of attitude, the, the city of Ephesus is looking at these Christians and thinking, you are not acting like the rest of us. And here's what happens, uh, starting in verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. He gathered the craftsmen together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that this business... From this business, we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, who has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized he was a Jew, for two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis? and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things could not be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous, nor, nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly." For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And he would, when he'd said these things, he dismissed the assembly. 
There are a couple of things we see in this really emotional and unique riot in Ephesus that even though things were very different in that time and place, that have a pretty surprising correlation to the things that we see and hear and interact with today. And the, the, first, the first kind of point that we can hang our hat on and come away from this knowing for sure is that the world will feel threatened by the gospel. The world is going to feel threatened by the gospel. And let's just look at what happens in the first little section, starting up at verse 23. Uh, the language that says, at that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, that's, that's just a fancy writing way of basically saying there was a big disturbance. Uh, it was not little. This was a big deal, what happened that time when Paul was in Ephesus. Same kind of language where uh, Demetrius, this silversmith, he makes his money by selling little shrines and idols of the goddess Artemis. And uh, it, when it says... Uh, you know, he brought no little business to the craftsmen. That's another way of saying he brought big business to the craftsmen. This was Ephesus's business. If you were making money and providing for your family in Ephesus, you were probably one way or another uh, in, involved with the cult of this goddess and this temple in their city. So in, uh, in verse 26... He's, he's bringing this charge. He's gathering together his little posse and saying, listen, guys, this is not good. We need to do something about this. And what he's concerned about is that everyone is hearing Paul's message and lots of them are believing it. And what is the message, at least his version of it, in verse 26 there, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. He is saying that you can't trust the stuff that you've got. Uh, that, that our religion is fake, because it was, uh, that these things that we're trusting in and selling and hawking to people are, are no good. And the kind of fear that the world ends up having when the gospel starts changing people, it's fear often played out on the world's terms. Right? This is, there is no concern here about whether Paul's message is true or not. We're not concerned about whether or not these little things we have aren't gods. We don't really want the answer, actually. We're not concerned about whether or not Paul's message about God is true, because that message is just too different for us, and it's going to change the way we make money. What we're concerned about is the bottom line. We're concerned that our profits are down. And there's a warning here, I think, for, for churches to recognize that the world will operate that way, and we all know it does. We all know, I mean, most of us sometimes in certain situations, we, it's very quick to just think about the bottom line. What is this going to cost me? What is this decision going to cost? What are the outcomes going to be if I go down this route? And there's a warning for the church not to play by these rules, just by way of a little offshoot and a comment there. I, it's, it's not unheard of to see churches, especially in the climate that we're in right now, in, in the fear of, of persecution, and the fear of consequences for standing up for Jesus, to see churches make a decision by the first person you consult is a lawyer to find out how you can do a thing a certain way, and then the second thing you consult is the word of God. And when we do that, we are, we're consulting the bottom line and playing by the rules that the world plays by. So we have to make sure that the, that the way the world makes decisions doesn't come into the way we make decisions as a church. 
Um, There's also a reminder here that we need to stay faithful in the way we proclaim the gospel because it is the only way to rescue sinners and give them a relationship with God. Uh, Gods made with hands are not gods. Systems made up by men do not work to cover sin. They don't work to restore broken lives. They don't work to give life meaning, and they don't work to restore us to a relationship with the God who made us. Only a relationship with Jesus Christ does that. So these salesmen have an issue in Ephesus, and the issue is that uh, profits are down. Now, how did profits go down? Because this is important. How do we account for the fact that less people are buying our little shrines? One commentator says, it's not by denouncing shrines. As in, they didn't start picketing the temple and say, gods made by hands are no gods at all. There wasn't, there wasn't a team of picketers out in front of the temple of Artemis saying, don't buy those. The way that sales went down is that people were changed. Okay, men and women did not need the shrines anymore because they had Jesus Christ now. That's the way victory was won. Listen to this. The streams of character affected the streams of conduct. First of all, the character changes when someone meets Jesus and starts obeying him, and then conduct changes after that. So the people who aren't buying the shrines anymore aren't ones that uh, just heard Paul's argument and said, oh yeah, hey, maybe shrines are bad. The people who aren't buying the stuff anymore are Christians. They're people who have become Christians and who don't act like the world anymore. And there's a little bit of background to show why this is such a big deal in Ephesus. Um, these are some things that might make you identify with the Ephesians a little bit more and help them bring their, bring their problems into uh, a modern context that we can understand. Ephesus used to be a huge market town because they were situated like right between Asia and, uh, and Macedonia, and they had a port. They had a great port, and they had a reputation for it. They made a lot of money with shipping and with boats because of the location that we're in. But generations of careless farming and just ignorance about the way the soil worked, uh, their fertile, fertile soil over generations eroded down into their waterways, filled the waterways with silt, and as a result, this once powerful sea market city was landlocked. Like, just think, you would be the laughingstock of you had all these boats and this whole trade merchant, and 200 years later, all of a sudden, you can't even get a boat out of your harbor because you're dry docked. And so this city that once had a lot of money now has no way to make money, no way to provide for their families, and the only way they have left to make money is by marketing their temple. Uh, this, this town had a really special relationship with Artemis, this goddess. Um, they, the temple was actually one of the, you, sometimes you hear about the seven wonders of the world, like the original list, the original seven wonders of the ancient world had the temple of Artemis in Ephesus on it. So this was, a, this was a big deal, and not only a big deal, this was the only way for people in that city to provide for their families and to make money. And now, this message is coming along saying, you can't do that anymore. Your life needs to change because you need to give glory to the only true God. 
And it's a little bit interesting. So some of you might know this, like, you know, the Greek gods, they had a whole list of all their gods. And then the Romans had a list of the exact same gods. Like the Romans just stole their Greek gods and gave them new names. And, and everyone had basically, it was all just the same gods, but the whole world was willing to play along and say, yeah, okay, you say Artemis, but we say Diana, they're really the same god. Um, and everyone was fine with that, except the Christians. Like the Christians are the only ones who are willing to stand and say, no, that's not okay. Everyone else is willing to play, you know, play the game and make money the way you've got to make money, and Christians are the only ones, and there are, there's contemporary examples that line up with this, right? Like we are heading in a place, the classic example is the Christian bakers who will not celebrate a gay wedding. You know, they'll, they're not discriminating, they'll make cakes for anyone, but they're saying we are not going to do something that's going to be celebrating and approving of a gay marriage, and they're being fined, and they're losing their business. They're not able to do the thing that they do to feed their family, because of what they believe. And we're heading a direction where doctors will not be able to have a clean conscience practicing medicine because they'll be forced to end lives. We're heading a direction where teachers won't be able to, with a straight face, teach the, the curriculum and the truth that they're asking to, to, to teach in classes. Um, I saw an article recently where Operation Christmas Child was being just lambasted. But it was like an expose, it was like, hey, you think that that's great that they're sending gifts off to kids who need them, but don't do it anymore because those are Christians. It was like this, you'll never guess what the Christians are doing with those. They're telling people about Jesus' love for them. Uh, what, how sneaky can those Christians be? You know, they want to send off gifts of love and also tell people about how God has loved them uh, in Jesus Christ. The bottom line is that the gospel scares the world because it doesn't compromise. The gospel is a message about what Jesus has done. And Jesus changes people. So the world will be scared by the gospel because we just won't play ball with everyone else. We, uh, we actually want to see people changed through Jesus. And uh, the, the second thing that we see that we can kind of hang our hat on here is that the world is not going to understand the nature of the conflict. And this is something that I think will help us. This will help you survive your Facebook feed is to not, under, to not assume that the world is going to know what we mean when we go out there and, and bring the message of the gospel to people. If you look at the, the account of the, like the riot that starts in verse 28, this is scary stuff. It says the entire city was filled with confusion. This city had a theater, which is where they drag everyone to, this theater held about as, almost as many people as a modern football field. Try and picture that, 2,000 years ago, this gr giant theater. Uh, this, this was a scary thing. Paul would later talk about, he said, he'd later say, I fought beasts at Ephesus. He might have been talking about this riot. And, and this is the scary thing when you start dealing with the reaction of a whole world instead of the reaction of individual people. Like when you share the gospel with, with an individual person, they're either going to believe or they're not going to believe. But when the whole world starts reacting, um, crowds don't act like people. Crowds aren't as smart as people, right? Crowds get carried away. And this is what we see here. This crowd gets carried away. The entire city is just screaming, great is the tremors of the Ephesians so loud that no one even knows why they're there. Everyone just gets dragged along and whipped up into this huge frenzy. It's like, someone's going to try and stop us from making money? Someone's going to change things? Oh, no, you're not. 
and the, the, they're calling out for blood, and this is scary. This is the only time I can think of when the Apostle Paul is going to go down there and talk to people, and his friends say, you know what, Paul? Maybe you shouldn't go there. And Paul doesn't go. It's about the only time I can think of where Paul doesn't wade into the battle and, and engage, because this is the kind of thing that you can't just talk any sense into. And there will be times when we just can't talk sense into people. There are going to be times where we have to think two tracks in our mind. What does it look like to be a good citizen of Canada? And what does it look like to be a good citizen of God's kingdom and realize that those will not always be the same thing? There are lots of ways that Christians can be a good citizen of Canada, but not every way. You know, there, there are some, some areas of compromise that we just can't cross if we're going to be good citizens of heaven first. There are some ways that the church has not helped make things clear. And I, I don't really, I'm not trying to make a political statement or anything, but there, I'm trying to make a spiritual statement. And it, it's easier to see, the same challenges are here in Canada, but it's easier to see south of the border, where you have seen evangelical Christians hitch their wagon and place their bets on the Republican Party to the point where when non-Christians think about the Republican Party, they think about Christians. And whatever the Republican Party does, it's assumed that Christians support. And this just, it confuses things. It, the world is going to be confused. The world is going to think that the church is trying to change things, say, politically, if it's not. Uh, but the church can't, be, can't have the same kind of confusion. Like the church has to remember we're citizens of, of heaven first. And what it looks like to be a good citizen of Canada is going to be to, to do de democratic things and to vote for good parties and sometimes to oppose certain laws. I'm not saying that the church shouldn't do those things, but we make an error if we think that that's how the, the world's going to change. If we think that that's how the world is going to be impacted by the gospel, uh, we're making a really crucial error that we can't make at, as God's people. When we want to see the gospel go out there in the world, the, the cost of, uh, of victory is not compromise. It might be persecution. And it might be misunderstanding. It might be suffering even when people don't know why they're throwing rocks at you. It might even be death in extreme cases of persecution. But the cost of victory over the world was purchased by Jesus and his death on the cross. The promise that we have in Scripture is that the one who overcomes through Jesus will have eternal and everlasting rewards. But that's the way we see the gospel go out. And uh, I just want to leave you with a few, a few final uh, thoughts that... I mean, I, I, I wish I was being more clear this morning, and I, I can tell that I'm not 
And so I, I want to apologize for that because my job is to, is to be clear. I can't clear up all the mess, but Scripture can, can reset our expectations so that when we look at what's going on in the world, we can make a little bit more sense of it from God's perspective. And one thing, and there's just a few little, a few little tips. You can call them like navigational tools and guides down at the bottom of the page there. Uh, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We need to remember this. Ephesians 6, which, by the way, the book of Ephesians was written to the city of Ephesus. Right? Paul's thinking about these people that he's seen go through these things. When he's writing to them, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our enemies aren't individual people. Our enemies aren't the crowds out there that whip up hatred against maybe us, maybe whatever else is the target this week. It reminds us that there's a certain necessity of prayer in battling any kind of darkness. We need to be on our knees and praying because we aren't going to win this fight with human words or human actions. Remembering that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, that individual people out there lost in darkness aren't our enemies, frees us to show the same grace towards them that God has shown towards us. We need to be gracious and pray for and love and share the truth with people who are lost in darkness and who don't understand where we're coming from with the love of God. How the next one is the gospel changes people who believe it, not people who don't. We talked about this a lot last week, and this is, this is just absolutely crucial for how the gospel changes people. The gospel changes us. Uh, people should see the change that the gospel produces in people through uh, believers, transform believers who don't play by the world's rules anymore. The gospel doesn't change people who don't believe it. And that means that we can't change the world by forcing what we like on it. And I think that there's room here for repentance in church history. There is room for us, as the church of God, to say, you know what? The medieval crusades, when we were going out and killing people by the sword and pillaging and doing it all in the name of God and in the kingdom of God as if that is the way that the kingdom of God is expanded, that's, that was wrong. That has nothing to do with who Jesus is and what his church should be doing and the way the message of the gospel goes out there and changes things. Maybe hitting a little bit closer to home, some of the mentality behind residential schools here in the nation of Canada, that's not how you help people. That's not how you change people. You can't force people to change, and you can't force people into the kingdom of God, and there might be room for reconciliation and repentance as a church. And there are more subtle ways that we make this confusion in our head. We have... Um, we have responsibilities as citizens of the kingdom to be the best possible citizens of Canada we can be. That means standing up for freedom of speech. That means uh, supporting the good things in our country. That means taking political stances. That means trying to make our country a place where there is less darkness and more light. 
But kingdom responsibilities is not the same thing as the way the kingdom grows. The kingdom grows through the spread of the gospel. Yeah, just as an example, to, f- to put some flesh on those bones, um, you know, it's one thing for the church to, to take a strong stance on abortion, to value every human life. I think it's a much stronger witness for the world for the church to then care for unwanted lives that come into the world. It's a much stronger witness to tie a, a stance against the evil of abortion with a stance for caring for families, with a stance for adoption. And I, I'm glad that we can point to some things in our church and say, here are families that have invested in other lives, who have adopted and cared for lives the way God has adopted us in Christ, and then to be as a community, a whole church that supports those families, that makes it possible for people in our church to take that step of faith. Uh, that, that kind of witness makes a bigger difference in the world. Another, another little just truth to keep in mind as you navigate the mess out there is that sometimes it's possible to explain to people what's going on. Sometimes it's possible to explain what the gospel is really about and why the church is not uh, a political movement. Um, sometimes it's just not. And, and when you can't explain, don't lose heart. Like, don't expect that the world is always going to understand what the church is doing. Sometimes you have to take some mud slung at you that you don't quite deserve. And that is not an, an unfair cost to follow Jesus Christ, who was hated by the world that he came to save. We can't always expect to look wise in the world's eyes. If that is the reward that we're working for, we're working towards the wrong reward. We need to try our best to explain and educate what's going on out there, but, but we need to remember that Jesus prayed on the cross for his Father to forgive those who did not know what they do. Jesus didn't get down from the cross because he suffered uh, unfair persecution, and we can't put down our cross when we do either. And uh, I, I'm, I'm going to end on this, uh, but you, you can write down just one more point uh, at the bottom there, below those other ones that I didn't include on your outline. And the last one is don't fear the world. Don't fear the world. Jesus told his followers that they should expect to be hated by the world because he was too. Followers of Christ can't expect to, to get points in the world's eyes for putting him first and for putting God first. We can't expect to be friends with the world. But in the same breath, Jesus told his followers that he has overcome the world. He reminded them that he is greater than what is in the world. That the world has been made to look foolish by his death on the cross. Even though the world thinks believers are foolish, Jesus, Jesus is the one who has already won the battle. He has already turned the whole world upside down by what he has done on the cross. Um. Our time is long, and my words are not precise enough to really be, be helpful, so I'm going 
I'm going to close this off tonight, not with my words, but with, with some of God's. I'm going to read from 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let no one suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? We will close with these words. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In other words, let those who are called by Christ's name do what Christ did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you convict us and bring us to repentance when as a people we forget the way you do things and we expect a certain reaction from the world that, quite frankly, you have taught us in your word not to expect. Lord, help us to not be surprised when it is hard and when it does cost to be a follower of you in this world. Lord, help us to not confuse the gospel of salvation that we receive through faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior, with any other kind of hope for salvation. Help us not put our hope in anything else. Lord, I don't intend by my words today, and I, I beg your forgiveness if I've been unclear. Lord, but I, we don't want to free ourselves from the responsibility of doing everything that is in our power as people in Wetaskiwin and in Canada. Lord, don't, don't, don't free us from the responsibility of, uh, of helping to make the world a better place around us but never, never let us compromise on what the message of salvation is. We are saved by you. Jesus, you are the one who sets sinners free. We can't wrestle the chains off of them. We can't wrestle the chains off of ourselves. Lord, we need the power of your salvation to change us and to help us change others in the world around us. 
So prepare us for whatever that looks like in the days that come ahead. Teach us to ask in the middle of our week, how can I be a faithful witness of Jesus Christ around me right now? Lord, prepare us for the times when the world is acting like a beast. Prepare us for times when we can't even get a word in edgewise. Lord, we know that this world is a dark place because it's turned its back on you. But give us the light that we need to see clearly and help us shine as a light in the darkness. Jesus, give us the grace we need to be faithful to your name. Amen.